Good morning, church. I am um, really excited to be here. Thank you so much for um, your invitation for me to have an opportunity to share with you this morning. Um, had, had an opportunity to have lunch with your pastor, and he is, he is a special one. And um, I am really excited to be able to partner with him. And um, for you guys who don't know me, my name is Wayne Dickens, and I have the absolute honor to serve as the campus de director for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Um, my wife and I both serve on that campus. My beautiful wife, Stacy, who's up front looking radiant as ever. <laughs> and my daughter, Naomi, who I always joke, um, is a girl version of me. So if I was a girl, that's what I would look like. Um, but one of, my, one of my best friends always tells me that the most important thing on a man's resume is his family. So my lovely wife, Stacy, works with me on campus. She serves as our women's ministry director. She works intimately with our, um, our football coaches' wives. Um, she works intimately with our girls' volleyball team and then our women's basketball team. And she's got a young lady that works under her now, Brittany Swells, who's working with softball and doing an absolutely incredible job. And then we've got my oldest, Naomi, who I've already talked about a little bit, and then we have my two boys. So... Uh, my oldest son, Cannon, is probably the most beautiful little boy you'll ever see in your life, okay? Um, he's already got young ladies bringing him gifts at school. <laughs> I think moms are already trying to, you know, recruit us. Um, but he's, he's, he's just silly, and we have a lot of fun with Cannon. And then Duke, my four-year-old, four we need a lot of prayer for, Okay. <laughs> Um, Duke is your resident schoolyard bully, okay? So we got to make sure we get him saved. He's going to be a handful. Um, but I have an absolutely incredible family, and, and God has, has called us to do just an incredible work on the campus of Western. I see Doc E over there, um, who was a part of the original group of people that helped to get us funded on campus and established and um, just so thankful to Doc and all of the other people. Jane Parrott was a part of that, who was a member here. And so we are, we are really fortunate um, to be at Western. But to, to tell you a little bit about our ministry, the vision of, of FCA on the campus of Western is to see the world transformed by Jesus Christ through the influence of coaches and athletes. And so we don't only minister to the coaches and athletes. We use the, the most influential group of people on campus to, to try and reach everybody on campus. And so um, I was a former athlete, had an opportunity to play football at Auburn University. I played back in the early 2000s from 2001 to 2005. Um, as you can tell, I was a kicker while I was there. <laughs> Y'all not buying that? No. no? Okay. I was a defensive tackle. I had my hand in the dirt. And um, I played in the early 2000s, and, um, and I love to, to tell about Auburn. Um, so growing up in the state of Florida, I'm originally from Lakeland, Florida, had absolutely no idea how crazy people in Alabama are about Auburn and Alabama. And so um, I, always, I always love to tell the history of Auburn. So Auburn, our theme has always been Auburn family, okay, because throughout the 60s and the 70s, the only place where you could get any kind of Auburn t-shirt or any kind of Auburn gear, you had to actually go to Auburn, Alabama. Because, you know, like UK is here in the state of Kentucky, Alabama just owns everything, right? So I always tell people that if you are an Auburn fan, 
you either graduated from the university or you had a family member that graduated from there. If you're an Alabama fan, you just bought a t-shirt at Walmart. <laughs> and so that helps you to understand the dynamic. Um, but I had an opportunity to play there. Um, God did an absolutely incredible work, both in my life and my wife's um, life. We both um, came to faith in Christ while we were at Auburn through the ministry of FCA. Um, our campus director, Chet Williams, and his wife, Lakiba, both mentored us early on in our faith. And, and that's a huge part of why we do what we do on the campus of Auburn now. Um, I'm starting my 15th fall um, working with working with athletics, and it's been a lot of fun. It's really the only job I ever had. I spent a, a very short time. I was in camp for a few months with the Tennessee Titans before um, FCA hired me. But, that, but since then, since, two, since the fall of 2006, the only thing I've been doing is working with FCA. So, so we love it. And what we and how we measure success at WKU for, for our ministry is what we call the three Ds. So number one is decisions. Um, we are actively sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we are trying to move young people and our, our coaches and their spouses as well into a, into a decision to make Jesus Christ their personal Lord and Savior. Um, and so we're, we've been really fortunate. We've had 41 baptisms since we've been on campus. We've already had three this year just in our preseason camp. So we're really excited. Thank you. We're really excited about that. So we, so we measure decisions. Um, we, we also uh, measure discipleship. And discipleship looks very different in a lot of different ways. For us, it's our team chapels. Um, it's our serve team that we have in our home twice, um, twice a week where we're actively walking them through the seven statements of faith. We're teaching them the foundational um, teachings of the gospel. Um, and... Um, and then we have our Bible studies, both our coaches and our player studies. A lot of those studies are student-led and run. Um, and then we have our large um, sports huddle ministry on Monday nights. So every other Monday night, we have all of our athletes, we gather them together. It's always somewhere between 80 and 120, just depending on how much homework they got to do. Um, and we meet with them on Monday night and share and encourage, um, encourage our athletes there. So decisions... Um, discipleship, and then development. And I always tell people the only limitation that we have within FCA is how much money we can raise. And so we've been really fortunate. The university doesn't um, give us any support at all financially. Every dollar that we spend, whether it's hiring new staff, whether it's um, leading a coach's Bible study, whether it's buying Bibles for our athletes, um, sending our young people to a camp or um, anything like that, we have to raise all of it. So those are the three metrics. And the thing that I wanted to talk to you guys about this morning is our Adopt an Athlete program that fits within our discipleship piece of our ministry. And so obviously we have a staff of three. We can't disciple 300 athletes properly. And so what um, I think the Lord laid on our heart a few years ago was to create a program where we would have families in the community adopt um, one or two athletes, have them into their home a couple times a month, feed them, love on them, be there for them while they're hurting, and then we just simply ask during your time to open up God's word and share whatever he's sharing with you with them. And so we've had a handful of families that have come alongside. We got one commitment 
earlier um, in the earlier service, but that's the, that's the invitation that I want to extend this morning. We need partners um, specifically right now for our baseball team um, to be able to get plugged in to serve all of our athletes because we're attempting to try and minister to 300 athletes, another 100 coaches across 14 sports on our campus. So that's a, a snapshot of what we do on campus and, um, and why we need your support and your partnership. Um, so let's go to the Lord in prayer, please. Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you so much for this time. Lord, I thank you for just this opportunity to share um, the good news of what you're doing on the campus of Western and how you've been working in the hearts of coaches and athletes in a mighty way through us, Lord. So we thank you for that opportunity. Lord, I pray for partners and I pray for families who, um, who love the cook and who love the host to, um, to adopt a few of our athletes and help to grow them in their personal relationships with Christ. Lord, I pray as we dive into the word this morning, Lord, that you would pour me out, that it wouldn't be about Wayne Dickens or about FCA or about anything other than an opportunity for your people to hear from you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just pour me out and pour a fresh anointing on me, Lord, so that I can be a tool in your hand to speak to your people this morning. Lord, this we ask in your precious son, Jesus' name, amen. Um, if you would, turn in your Bibles. We are going to be in Luke chapter 15. We are going to be looking at verses 1 through 24. And I'll start um, in verse 11 here shortly. But one of the things that I love to do um, whenever um, with our coaches, I especially love it with our coaches, and we just did it, um, did it last week. We're starting a new book. Um, I love to be able to give them the context Talk, talk to them about the author, the audience, and just really give them perspective on why um, this particular passage or this particular book is written. And so um, when we look at the context of this parable that Jesus is, 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 is telling that was later written, you have to understand why Jesus is telling this story. He is telling this story because at this point, um, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders had had built up all of these walls and, and created all of this, these things that you had to do, um, these, these really high, unattainable goals that you had to, to do and be to have a relationship with God. And so what Jesus is attempting to do is to give an accurate picture of who God is. He, he's, he's trying to, to let the common person know that you can have a relationship with God and you don't have to do all of these things. You don't have to be perfect. And so he's speaking to the common man here. Um, now we have to also understand the three characters in the story. And so first of all, we have the prodigal son who the story is named after. Okay, And, and what you have to understand is this young man grew up in, in affluence. There was, there was nothing held back from him. The best schools, the best food, the best of everything, which, is, which can be a blessing, but it also can be a curse for someone who's not mature enough to handle the blessing. And so it ended up being a curse for the prodigal son because he was, he was, he was led by his emotions. He was, he was very impulsive because nothing was ever held back from him. So if he wanted it, he usually got it. And in and, and a, a young man who's not mature, who's not grounded in his relationship with God, who's not logical, it can be very dangerous. And so that's what we see later in this passage 
um, of the prodigal son. So you've got the prodigal son, and then you've got the older self-righteous brother, right? And we all have a brother or a sister like this, right? Straight A's, never gets in trouble, does everything right. They, they make you sick, right? Um, I've got a younger sister very much like that. Um, but what we understand about the, the older self-righteous brother is this, that he struggles with a lot of the same issues that the younger brother does. He's just gotten good at covering up and putting a good face on it. And, um, man, I wish we had time this morning to dive into the, the, self, the older brother, but, but we don't. Um, and then the, the third character in this story is the loving father. And what you have to understand about this father and the wealth that he built, it wasn't wealth in the way that we think of it. Wealth during, during that age and that time was primarily acquired through acreage and livestock. And so to, to build wealth, it, it never really was just passed down. It was, it was an understanding of the soil and, and what good land looked like and how to acquire it and, and how to how to raise livestock and how to grow your flock. And so um, the wealth that, that, that the older father had built um, was vast. But the, the thing about the other, older father is he was extremely mature. It didn't create any arrogance in him. It didn't create any haughtiness in him. There was a humility there. And that's why he is the perfect picture of God the Father, because he, he has everything he could ever imagine, but he's compassionate and kind and loving and generous. And so to be able to pull all of the meat off of the bones um, for these verses, you really have to understand the characters and the context. So I'll begin by reading in verse 11, and I'll read verses 11 through 19. He said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all that he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the, from the pods the pigs were eating, but no one would give him any, anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll go up to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. I'll stop right there. Um, and I want to go back to verse number 12. Verse 12 is important because there's a lot there. Um, but Jesus just moves past it very quickly. So verse 12 says, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to him. 
So what you have to understand about that request was it was, a, it was a request where the son was saying to the father, I wish you would drop dead. And not only do I wish you would drop dead, but I wish you would drop dead right now. Um, it was highly offensive. Um, there are a few biblical scholars that say at, the, at that request, the father had the right to take his son out and stone him to death. Um, but he didn't. Not only was he extremely offensive to his father, but he was also jumping the, the, he was jumping the line. Um, the father, when he did come to a, to a point where he was to pass, would leave everything to the older brother. And the older brother would distribute if evenly or as needed to the siblings. Um, there, there's, that's, that's one view on it. Or... Um, there's another view that says he was only entitled to one-third of what he was requesting. And so either way, it's a high offense. It's a high offense that the Scripture just moves past. The, the Scripture just simply says that, so he distributed the assets to him. Now what you have to understand again about these assets were these assets weren't sitting in a bank account. He didn't simply just cash app him or Venmo him the money that he requested. It, it took time for him to go out and to first calculate how much of the land he was due and then to find a buyer for that land and then not only for the land but then also for the livestock. Um, the, the, a more accurate picture of what the, what the father was doing in that moment was he was tearing his life apart. He was, he was taking this business or this wealth that he's worked for decades to build and he's systematically selling off portions of his company. And it says that the scripture tells us that he did it just in a matter of days. Um, and I think Jesus is intentional in telling this part of the story and moving on past it very quickly because that's what he does for us. At the, at the sight, at the encounter of our highly offensive sin at the highly offensive requests that we make. So often we request things that we, we, we know we're not prepared for. The son wasn't prepared for this wealth that his father was going to pass to him. Um, at our offense, Jesus tore his life apart for us. He literally hung and bled on the cross for our sin, not his. And so I think it's a picture of, it's a picture of the sacrificial death. And it's a picture of the, the sacrifice that God um, and the Trinity is willing to make on our behalf. To, to give us what we, what we desire, even though they know we can't handle it and they're going to have to come back and clean up our mess. But it goes on to say, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and he traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. Um, the ESV says reckless living. And what I love about verse 13 is it, it gives you a very, a very graphic picture um, that he traveled to a far country. So to go from Bowling Green, Kentucky to Las Vegas, Nevada, where you can basically do anything that your heart's desire heart desires as far as sin is concerned, that wouldn't be far enough for him. 
He had to literally leave the country. He had to leave the places where people knew him and knew his father, where he could get really in a very dark place where he could do those things that he had been thinking about and dreaming about for years. And ultimately where it led the prodigal son was it led him not only to financial ruin, but it also led him to spiritual ruin. He was, he was far from God in a place that he knew no one. And he was penniless. He's penniless and a recession hits. The, the scripture tells us that a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he goes on to say that he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And you guys understand Jewish culture, not only was he broke, but now he's feeding pigs. He's ceremonially unclean. He's about as low as you can get. And in this moment, um, verse 17 tells us that, um, that he comes to his senses. He's, he's fallen so low. He's so broken, so hungry. He's so spiritually deprived that um, he finally has to look up. And he says when... When he came to his senses, he was finally thankful, and he finally realized what his, what his father had provided for him. And unfortunately, we are so often like the prodigal son where it takes us losing the comforts. It takes us being in a season or a a a period of our life where everything is upside down for us finally to be thankful for the way things used to be. To be thankful for a father who cared for us and put a roof over our head and clothes on our back. Um, I, I remember vividly growing up, my mom used to say this all the time, and it was the weirdest thing, but I get it now. When I was growing up, she would always say, son, you are living the best part of your life. And she would tell me that as a kid, and I'm like, no, I have a bedtime. I got to do what you tell me to do. This ain't great. But when I think back to it, it, it was. Number one, I didn't have to pay any bills. Amen? Amen. <laughs> and, and so often, God blesses us and give, gives us things that we simply aren't thankful for. And so I think part of this story, Jesus was wanting us simply to be thankful for the things that God does for us that we're sometimes not even aware of. I'll keep moving on. So he finally comes to his senses, and he realizes what he's given up. So he decides to go home. And I think all of us have been in this place in our lives where we have been out past curfew and let's say curfew is 11 and it's 11.15 or 11.30 and we just decide, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to stay out all night. I'm going to stay out till 2 or 3. And 2 or 3 o'clock finally comes and you have that moment where 
you have to go home, right? You have to go home and you begin to create the story or the thing that you're going to say so that you're accepted when you go home, right? What happened? How I got stranded? How 11 o'clock became 2 a.m.? And that's what the prodigal son is saying here. He's saying, I'll go to my father and I'll, I'll tell him, you don't even have to make me a son. I'll be one of your hired servants. I just would, would like to be restored back into the family. And I love what the scripture tells us here in verse 20. It says, so he got up and he went to his father, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion. And in my mind, I see this father sitting on the porch every morning with his, with his word, praying for his son, waiting for him to crack the horizon. And this morning, he finally does that. He finally cracks the horizon. And the scripture says he ran, he threw his arms around his neck, and he kissed him. And the son said to the father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring out the fatted calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. And I love verse 20. It, it, it really speaks to the, the joy that this father has. It says he ran which when you understand the, the culture during that time, um, grown men didn't run, especially very wealthy men. Little kids ran, but to, to run was, was, was not even thought of. But it speaks to the, the joy that this father has for his son. He not only runs out to him, he throws his arm around him. The, the son begins to, to, to tell this sob story of why he left and, and what happened. And, hey, just make me a hired servant. And he cuts him short. And he immediately restores him into sonship. Immediately. He didn't ask for him to pay anything back. Hey, I need to get my land back. Where are those cows that I sent with you? He immediately restores him back to sonship, and, and then he throws a county fair for him. The, the, Timothy Keller, an incredible Bible teacher, says that, um, that this, this feast would have lasted for days, and people would have come from miles around. And so the question that I want to ask this morning for, for all of you is this. When you have blown it, when you have done the thing again, when you have, um, when you have failed again, when you have disappointed God, what do you think he feels towards you? Do you think he feels anger, frustration? Like when is Wayne going to ever get this thing right? 
I'm tired of waiting for him to, to get himself together. Because what the scriptures tell us, and, and it's, I think, important that Jesus is telling this story because he's trying to get us to understand the heart of God. What the scriptures tell us here is that God feels compassion for us. That he wants to be close to us. That when we, when we come home, when we, when we look up from our rock bottom moment, that there's joy in his heart when we come home. And I don't think we hear that enough. I don't think we're reminded um, enough of how much God loves us and how he already knew we were going to mess up. That's why he died on the cross and that he simply desires to be in relationship with us. And so as we close, I want to remind you of these two points. Number one, that God has called us to be like him. He has called us to be compassionate, not just to other believers, but he has called us to be compassionate to the world. He has called us to remember that time before we became old, well, let me take that back, seasoned in our faith, right? Before we had gone through tons of Bible studies and hundreds of Sunday mornings and we have an intimate and personal relationship with him. He, he reminds us to go back to that time when we didn't know anything about him. When all we knew was John 3.16 and we were just trying our best and failing over and over again. He wants us to remember that moment and when we engage the world, when we especially engage the lost, to be compassionate towards them. One of my mentors used to always say, um, we get frustrated at sinners for doing what they're supposed to do. We are to be compassionate to those who don't look like us, to those who don't live like us, to those who don't understand what we understand about God. But we also are reminded That God, more than anything, desires to be close to us. That he is more concerned about relational proximity than religious performance. There are no brownie points for doing the things that we're supposed to do. We are children of God. We, are, we should want to sit at his feet. Sunday morning should be uh, uh, an honor and a privilege and not a thing we think we should get bonus points from, for. Reading our word should be something that you should desire to do. It's not something that we should be patted on the back for. But when we understand this story, when we understand the message of what Jesus was trying to portray to the world, that God ultimately desires to be in relationship with us so that he can love us well, then it helps us to be able to engage the culture well. It, it allows us to be able to see past other people's sin and their shortcomings to know if I can simply get that student athlete or that coach close enough to Jesus that he'll do the rest. 
And so that's my challenge um, to you, brothers and sisters, as we continue to go out and continue to be the, the ambassadors for Christ, that we are to be compassionate and that we are to be as close to God as we possibly can be. Let's pray.